You're tuned in to Atlanta Fringe Audio, the podcasting network of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. Want to win a couple of free tickets to the Atlanta Fringe Festival June 5th through 11th? Enjoy Fringe Audio and fill out the Fringe Audio crossword puzzle. It's that easy. 10 winners will be selected. Check out the description box for all the details or visit atlantafringe.org fringe dash audio. Now for the show. It's for mature audiences. It contains adult content. Welcome to Diabetic and Candyland, stories about winning and losing and failing successfully, show number one. And just to warn you, I tend to take a wide stance when I podcast, so don't misunderstand anything if you're in the podcast next to me. Diabetic and Candyland, stories about winning at losing and failing miserably, was a podcast I produced during the early aughts. Back then, podcasting was a burgeoning new medium where a handful of creative pioneers made audio content in homemade studios for the new iPod and other portable audio devices. I produced 30 shows, which was moderately welcomed by the growing cult of podcast listeners. Yet the toil of writing, producing, and releasing content on a bi-weekly basis ate away at my dwindling free time, so I had to pause it. I later rediscovered my love of podcasting with Atlanta Fringe Festival produced Atlanta Fringe Audio. And I've been meaning to rework some of the old pieces I contributed for five years. Well, now six. And I'm kind of hooked. And kind of an archive of where my brain was earlier this century. Since then, I've made the leap from recording closet and did a gut-wrenching leap onto a literal physical platform. I'm happy to announce my first audio fringe contribution, Farting in Church, is now a live storytelling show and will debut at the Atlanta International Fringe Festival May 12th through 13th on your streaming channel. Then it will be a live and in-person performance at the Denver Fringe Festival June 8th through 11th. And I want to throw a big thanks to Diana, Jessica, Chris, Brittany, and the rest of the Atlanta Fringe crew for giving me my first break. Sorry I won't make it to this year's Fringe. I've been a bit busy recently. If you want to know more about me and where I'm performing, visit www.tonysololive.com. At least I wasn't homeless or married with three kids and a double mortgage, I thought to myself as I was scouring the house for change to buy my next meal. The first and most obvious choice was the couches. I removed the cushions and found some pennies underneath, then probed the filthy desks of the sides where I recovered a missing CD player remote, a few fossilized french fries, some receipts, and one dime. We needed to have more guests, I thought. I found more pennies around the kitchen and in my dirty clothes pockets and wondered where the other caches of change could be. The laundry room. I opened a washing machine and found a couple of more pennies, then searched a dryer. There, I found a whole quarter. 
I was at that sub-basement of broke where a quarter seemed like early retirement money. At my desk, I counted out my net worth, which came to a staggering 64 cents. One quarter, one dime, a nickel, and 24 pennies. I was off to the grocery store. Before leaving, I checked the answering machine. No new messages, the toneless digital woman's voice said. I had been fighting for my last paycheck from the tech support company I left without notice. Or more like just walked up in the middle of a call and walked to my car and drove off. It wasn't the woman who couldn't access her mailing list on a popular ISP that had failed so many users that broke me. It was the Gundams, the Star Wars toys, Doctor Who Talus pencil holders, inspirational quotes shellacked on wooden planks, and family pictures that decorated the other cubicles around me. It reminded me of Egyptian crypts that were stocked with the deceased's familiar belongings to accompany them to the next world, to make Hades a little more homey. I had a panic attack and felt like I was suffocating, watching an imaginary torch flame shrink as the oxygen ran out. I took my coffee mug and left, murmuring, I'm not dead. The last message from my company said the regional office sent a request to the corporate office, carbon copy to state office, who then told them that my check would be invalid in five days. My check was really making the rounds like a stolen garden gnome. I expected to see pictures of it in front of the Eiffel Tower in the mail. So I walked to the local Publix, my change heavy in my pocket and jingling with every step. My plan was to buy super amins to mix with a bag of Italian vegetables I bought six months ago. I would have to chisel them out of the Fridgeberg and then hope they weren't too freezer burn to eat. I arrived at the Publix and passed the shopping baskets and went straight to aisle 6 where Manchu Walk 7 for a buck noodle bricks were. I selected a shrimp, a beef, and a chicken flavor. Since they were nostalgic teas of real food, I went to the meat department and looked at the steak and chicken and thought, someday. My mother told me that whenever the family was in for some financially lean times, we had steak to inaugurate the coming years of penny strangling. I always wondered why shortly after the glorious steak feast, spam casserole, banquet pot pies, and fish fingers were on heavy rotation on the family menu. I nabbed some freebies from the sample tables, like some rice Chex mix, cayenne tilapia, and nabbed a couple of grapes from produce. Time to check out. I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of the cashiers. Fortunately, Publix had installed brand new cutting-edge self-serve checkout lines where shoppers could squash their own bread, bag their own rotisserie chicken with the ice cream, and haggled over expired coupons without human assistance. It was a meeting of a checkout line conveyor belt with a laser scanner and a touchscreen ATM. A buoyant pre-recorded woman's voice guided you through the process. This silicon-based robo-cashier sounded more friendly and courteous than my answering machine voice and the carbon-based cashiers at the other checkout lines. Two of these units were out of order. With three swipes of my hand, I scanned and bagged my groceries, then dug into my pocket and brought out my change to pay the 58-cent bill. A line had formed behind me and I noticed a pretty blonde girl stood in line. In the fashion of that swelter of patriotism, she wore a knitted sweater of the American flag cut at the midriff and tight Tommy Hilfinger jeans. Her navel pouted slightly on her taut white stomach. She smelled like the hostess in paradise. She held a few hair care products and a pack of sugarless gum, maintenance products to preserve her beauty and avoid what lined up behind her. The large middle-aged woman symbolized American prosperity and plenitude in high definition with 12-inch woofers. One had admired the courage of women of this girth who wore cargo shorts with a halter top. In her overflowing shopping cart beheld the cause. Briar's ice cream, chump roast steak, dressings of every flavor, Oreos and polysaturated corn-sweetened delights. To be considerate, I began feeding coins into the coin slot. 
Each time I entered a coin, the robocashier said, please insert payment. Every time. I had about 30 pieces of coin to enter, and then noticed the overhead camera which televised my bald spot on the screen above to the people behind me. I heard the blonde grunt her impatience as I fed coins as quickly as possible, each time seeing an indictment of my poverty, my lacking, my inadequacy. I became so self-conscious I began hearing things. Please hurry up, robo-cashier said. Please insert payment, loser. You are an inconvenience. You will never be happy. You shouldn't have quit your job. She doesn't want you. The blonde, the star-spangled symbol of everything I can't have, sighed impatiently. The halter-top woman, cart gushing with food I can't have, grunted. The final coin dropped and my receipt printed up. I appreciated the absurdity of what just happened, and I glanced behind me, hoping someone was smiling. There wasn't even a figment of a smile on any face behind me. I took my featherweight bag and heard shoppers murmur about me as the automatic door shushed to a close. On the walk home, I denied myself the privilege of feeling sorry for myself. The preceding week, on an idle Tuesday, a postcard of the New York City skyline on my mother's refrigerator became a historical timestamp. There was an empty place setting at 3,000 dinner tables. A seemingly idiosyncratic date became a euphemism for when I will tell my horribly mutated grandchildren the day when America changed. I couldn't pity myself because I chose unemployment instead of mediocrity in a country where few understood how someone could be unemployed. The employed can understand the unemployed like those without cancer can understand the stricken. Everyone sympathizes but fears that some virus or carcinoma may jump from a handshake or a mutually shared pencil. Somehow, they blamed a victim. They must have done something to heap this fate upon them. Friends will fear you will hit them up for money or get all weird and depressed and suicidal. I knew this since this was how I had judged other unemployed friends. They had a dark juju about them, like an abandoned home with a freshly mowed lawn. Something had to be wrong with them and something had to be wrong with me for walking out of a good job and thinking I was a hero for doing it. I arrived home and checked the mail and looked into its cavernous nothing. I checked the answering machine. Nothing. The only thing left to look forward to was dinner. I looked at my schedule posted next to the pictures of this month's team players. Then again, and again, I shook my head in disbelief. The schedule grid had me working a 12-hour shift on Christmas Day. I found my team lead, Kevin, chatting and telling unfunny jokes to the other team leads. He was a failed stand-up comic whose every bad impression and joke held a flicker of hope that Leno would someday call. You know, my friend, he impersonated Brando in The Godfather. The only way to get Christmas off is to ask for it six months in advance. You have been here two months, so I'm afraid there's no way out of it. The other leads tittered. I turned to skulk to my desk. And another thing, he said in his own voice. Your call times were great this month, but referrals were, eh, a bit off. Referrals were the little sales suggestions before you closed a call. You were to mention a now thankfully defunct phone company services and whether they wanted to be transferred to save on long distance bills. It was up to the caller, not me, to make that decision. If they said no, then I couldn't convince them otherwise and closed a call. 
You had a weekly quota, and if you didn't make it, you could be terminated. So he tells me that if I don't get my quota up, I'll be retrained. This was the wrong thing to say to someone who will be spending Christmas in a cubicle, not with his family. I went to my desk and there was Lucy, a full-figured, loud and sweet punk girl who looked dour for once. She had gotten Christmas too, and New Year's. Yet, moments later, she hatched a plan of revenge that would make this season brighter. Christmas Day. Even Florida, the chill could be felt through the arrow-slit windows, the vista to bare hedges that trembled in the wind, and a field of asphalt. Fuzzy tinsel garlands hung on these windows, smushed into place by scotch tape. Lucy had brought some gifts she received from her parents and some sugar cookies. One was a robot kitty that came when called, unlike an organic kitty. Support came online at 8 a.m. and Kevin told us the day would be slow. One thing we were warned about was the new computer users. Everywhere in America, kids were unpacking new PCs and a thousand baggies of components, and mom and dad were trying to figure out how to get it working. It was easier than a bike, but getting on the internet was the main purpose. Most of the time they got online, with a little help from a conspicuous icon on their desktop. Most of the time they got online. The rest of the time, we got the call. Teaching you fish tailors and slowpokes on the information superhighway. The first hour was uneventful. A couple of people having trouble with access numbers and one frazzled man wanting to erase his visited history. Usually this meant he wanted to erase his smarmy trail of internet porn before his kids and wife got online. And on a Christmas day. I felt something nudge my ankle. I looked at my foot and Lucy's toy cat stood there with a neon red post-it note saying, 6.30. I took it and wadded it up and threw it in a wastebasket. I glanced over my cubicle wall to see if Kevin noticed. He was elsewhere, probably doing his best James Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life for the other leads. I sent the cat back and she sent it on its next mission to other conspirators. The plan was unfolding. The next hour is a slurry of standard setup calls with time to vegetate and daydream. Instant message other bored texts and looking out the hour slit windows as nighttime arrived, darkening the grayer asphalt field. My headset snapped me out of it. The call came from Madison, Wisconsin, and a woman spoke. Her voice was frail-sounding. She was unable to get on the internet and began the usual computer-guided solutions. I guided her to clear her internet cache, but it didn't work. We changed her access numbers. We restarted a computer, pinged the ISP, and nothing worked. The help desk program took us through to standard solutions until it came to the final conclusion. Reinstall the software. The only problem is that you needed a CD, and Madison was entombed in snow. Also, she couldn't download it for the obvious reasons. I heard the woman weep silently. It's okay, we'll find a way to fix this. I can't go anywhere. I'm wheelchair-bound and a shut-in. The internet's the only way I've got to talk to people. I couldn't apologize anymore without crying myself. Kevin lurked behind me, like the Death Star hovering over Alderaan. He looked at me and I knew I had blown my 3.5-minute call time six times over. He made a motion, pantomiming a phone being hung up. With great strain, I said, Ma'am, if you could somehow get a CD and reinstall it, then we can take it from there. Please give us a call back. But I don't have any way to talk to anybody. It's Christmas, she said, and she lost control. I pressed the hang-up button. I could feel Kevin's glance. You forgot the referral, he said in Raymond Rainman Babbitt's voice. Jesus Christ, a woman is chair-bound and crying. Sorry, but it's procedure. He leaned on my cubicle wall. 
You've got to turn off that part of yourself that cares. If you get personally involved, then your call times will suffer. Turn off the part of myself that cared on Christmas. This was a tech support, not the emergency room. This shit, I screamed and threw down my headset and stormed off. Toward the bathroom, murmuring something like, Stupid, life-sucking, Bukowski, post-office, chaplain-esque, modern times, Dilbert without the dry irony. My brush file rage ended and I found myself in the break room. There was the non-threatening foosball table. The message board where the photos of the team play is, in ridiculous bolas and fake peacock feather hats were pinned, and the hum of the soda machine condensers. I had never talked back to a supervisor, especially with that kind of language, and I was expecting him to be stumming toward me with a flotilla of team leads ready to broadside my career. Instead, I saw Lucy coming toward me, her inner smile soothing. Kevin says he's not mad, and if you'll come back to work, he won't write you up and forget about that little outburst, she said. I nodded. If it's forgotten, then I don't have to apologize to him. So I walked back to my cubicle with her. She hummed a familiar Christmas tune and looked back at me to see if I was getting it. I did. It was 6.15 and it was 15 minutes till our conspiracy would hatch. Down our aisle, our co-conspirators looked at Lucy and gave us a thumbs up. Kevin was at his cubicle. Now they as a team player, he said in a mock rapper accent. Back at my cubicle, I got into my headset and took a couple of calls. While I guided a distressed mom trying to find an access number in a rural area, I googled the lyrics to the carol Lucy hummed. The woman ranted about how she had to buy a computer for her kid's future and I watched the clock. The next call was an enormously angry man trying to blame us for crashing his computer, although he said it was an old computer. I heard ice thumping in a plastic tumbler and continued to insult me and called me names as I tried to calm him down. He evaded my questions and I heard him throw something and said I was probably some skinny pimply nerd with dandruff or asthma or something. Then he really laid into me and I heard something fleshy thump on the receiver. The minute hand hit 30. I put the man on hold and stood up. Other people emerged from their desks, some hesitant, others emphatic. Lucy swished her hands like a choir director and we began singing, Oh, come all ye faithful, with a nervous bluster. There was about five of us, but then others rose and joined. Kevin rushed halfway down the aisle, confused and inadvertently doing the best impression of It's a Wonderful Life spank scene. Across the field of cubicles, other people rose and sang. We were mostly off-key, but eventually we found the harmony. One even stood on his cubicle, singing with such power and sincerity that emboldened the rest of us. The lead just stood there, helpless to stop the mutiny. There wasn't enough pink forms to write us all up. We finished a couple of choruses, and the energy ebbed, and one by one we sat back down, put our headsets back on, and returned to our calling queue. The leads just stood there, then retreated back to their cubicles. Nothing was said about the faithful conspiracy. What were leads going to do? Say that a near mutiny occurred on their watch to the managers, who were with their family and fattened with drink and turkey? We didn't even comment to each other as we gathered our belongings to go home. Outside was cold and cruel as the inside. Before that moment, we set a thousand Yule logs ablaze. We were lights on a phone tree. We did tech support on a part of ourselves that cared. Squawked my radio. 
It was easy as not answering. Just will yourself not to answer, I thought. Unit 87! It squawked again. I picked up the receiver and answered. Unit 87, 10-4. Thanks a lot, are you checking out? Dispatcher, Frank, had a rough Brooklynese accent thick like marinara sauce. Sometimes he sounded like a supporting actor from a De Niro movie. No, I'm open. I was exhausted but could use the extra money. I had spent the afternoon running legal documents between the downtown law firms and the courthouse. The truck's AC leaked Freon, making the cab stuffy, and I had to fill up on gas in the middle of a run. The only gas station was two exits west on 275, so I had to double back to downtown. Well, this ain't papers, dispatch said. Let me ask you, are you comfortable with, um, human tissue? No problem. I delivered stool samples and blood for drug screenings. What's the difference? Well, this one is different. It's a body pot. You mean a prosthetic? No, uh, as in a human hand. I sat in disbelief. I had been told Express Me Delivery Service would sometimes carry organs. Once a courier boarded a Miami-bound plane with a human heart in an igloo chest. Please help me out. Unit 34 is in Pasco and everyone else is stuck in traffic. What's your 20? 7-Eleven at Himes and Dale Mabry? I said as I signaled to the bartender to give me my tab. Close enough. Yeah, close by Tampa geography. That was 10 miles away. Okay, uh, 16 in Moffitt Center. You'll have a couple of runs in between, but this needs to be delivered by 8P in South St. Pete. 10-4, I said as I gulped down the last of the beer. My pager vibrated and rattled my pocket change. The bartender pushed the check in front of me, keeping quiet, and I slapped down a 10 and pushed it back. In the truck, I spruced up in the mirror and sprayed myself with Old Spice to cover the beery smell. Then I took a shot from the miniature scope bottle, swished it around and spat out the window, then cleaned my face with a wet nap from Popeyes. I started for the Moffat Center, head swooning with a scent of imitation lemon and cheap cologne. My then-girlfriend had the genius idea that I'd become a courier after she met one who claimed to make 600 bucks a week. There were a few jobs available in the dead of Tampa summer, at least working inside, so the next best thing was in an air-conditioned car. So I showed up to the Express Me office, and the equipment manager gave me the job rundown. The company delivered documents and medical specimens within a reasonable area, sometimes even out of state or country. They worked as an independent contractor, which meant I had to get a business license right out of pocket. Also, I had to rent a CB radio at 15 bucks a week and buy Hillsborough and Pinellas County Road Atlas at $30 each. They loaned me an igloo ice chest with a styrofoam compartment that stored dry ice to keep medical specimens cold. My payment was half the delivery charge, based on the mileage from wherever the courier departed. After two months as a courier, my best paycheck, after deducting gas, radio rental, tolls, and oil changes, was $350. Yet, there was an independent cowboy allure about the job, kind of like being a trucker. Also, I saw the world behind a reception desk of public institutions like jails, hospitals, colleges, and doctor's offices. I was the courier of fate and verdicts. The urine sample I delivered to a lab corp carried the truth of whether one's detox cure flushed recriminations from the kidney and earned them the job or a workman's comp claim? Or did the blood-worked sample reveal the polyp as malignant or benign? Or if the unprotected one-nighter doomed someone. One day, I made two runs between Tampa General Hospital psych ward and the courthouse. 
The patients waited adored in drooling Thorazine stupor like needy pets waiting for their owner. This one huge fellow lurched over me, his long, stringy, dishwater blonde hair brushing my forehead. He mumbled something and a desk nurse shooed him away. She handed me a document addressed to the clerk of court. This guy knew I held the papers to either incarcerate or free him. I delivered it in five minutes. I entered the reception lobby of the Moffitt Center, a world-class cancer research hospital, reading my pager and asked for this doctor. The nurse paged him and told me to meet him in one of the labs. I found my way through the tan hallways to the correct lab and there on the table was a cardboard box. It was about one cubic foot in volume, wrapped in packing tape, dotted with yellow warning stickers, sitting innocuously like a fruit basket. The lab looked like any other. Medical tables, sinks, microscopes, sliding glass door fridges like the one I took a yoo out of earlier. I announced myself, but the lab was empty. Only me and the hand. The delivery address was written on a yellow post-it note next to it. I picked up the package, which was cold and packed with dry ice. It seemed harmless, but I carried it at arm's length through the truck. I had two pages rattling on my belt as I jogged to my truck and put the box on the passenger seat. As I filled out my delivery slips, I glanced at it. Should I put it on the floor or in the seat, I thought. Nightfall was arriving and the passenger side floor seemed dark and cavernous, so I put the box on the seat and put the seatbelt around it, right where I could see it. My next pickup and delivery was at an OBGYN at Habana and Rome. Traffic mercies were on my side and I-275 was blessedly unobstructed. Yet I couldn't stop glancing at the box, wondering about its contents. Since the Moffitt Center was a cancer research center, the hand had probably been amputated to keep a cancer from spreading. The destination lab was going to study, perhaps even diagnose, a very rare form of cancer. I couldn't help but think about the post-midnight horror flicks where severed limbs came to life. Did I just hear something rattle in there? No, 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 no. I turned on the radio and the noise of shitty 80s metal was a preferred comfort to the silence. I had expected a simple specimen pickup at OBGYN, but once I got there, the receptionist showed me three legal document boxes. I carried them to my truck and put them in the bed and fastened them down with a cargo net. The receptionist, bitchy and obviously eager to go home, asked for them to be put in the cab. No problem. Put my cooler in the bed and move the box around and stack them on the passenger seat. I then hurried to I-275 West towards St. Pete. As I ascended the on-ramp to an eight-mile stretch of the Howard Franklin Bridge, a feeling crept over me like I had left something. Did I leave the iron on or... Did I leave that porno magazine on a coffee table where my girlfriend could find it? I looked at the boxes and noticed something was missing. Oh my god, the hand! Well, I I really couldn't do that since there were no U-turns on the Howard Frankenstein. Just Tampa Bay on either side. The only turnaround exit was on the St. Pete side, eight miles ahead. I cursed and punched a cab ceiling, leaving a fist imprint on the upholstery. I feared that Tampa's army of petty criminals would steal it, or carve it into an interesting tobacco accessory. 
After a 16-mile detour, I was back at the OBGYN and the parking lot was empty. But there, sitting alone on the curb, was the hand. Undisturbed. I took it and checked it out like it was a baby, and it seemed undamaged. Unit 87, called dispatch. Unit 87, over. What's your 20? Um, Roman Dale Mabry, en route to St. Pete for a drop-off. Okay, uh, is that special package giving you any trouble? Oh no, it's fine. I sort of needed an extra hand. Yeah, right. Well, you're the only one who would take it. Just get it dropped off by AP. Back on route, I traveled deep into peninsular St. Pete and dropped off the legal boxes at a law office and made a short lateral run between clinics. Back on 275 again and two exits later, I found the laboratory with little effort. I was met by a metal gate and announced myself on a call box. A voice directed me to the service entrance. The gate parted, revealing a white, windowless, single-story structure fringed by palm trees. I found a service entrance, and there were two uniformed guards waiting for me, both holstering 9mm Glocks. I exited a truck, and one of them arrived with a clipboard and asked for my ID. The guard scrutinized my ID, spoke to someone on his radio, and then led me through a steel door. On the other side was a guard station with a detector in my path. He told me to empty my pockets and put the contents in this plastic basket I used to get fries served in at Dairy Queen. I did so and went through the metal detector and he inspected my package. After clearing the other side without a blip or a tick, he gave me a temporary visitor's pass and led me through the maze work of the hallway. We arrived at a double glass door and he swiped a badge on a card reader and showed me in. I had seen many labs before, but this one was right out of a Bond flick. There were computer stations with four flat-screen monitors, which were very expensive in those days, displaying bar graphs, line graphs, and fractal patterns. But one screen showed a black-and-white video of a beating human heart. But where the veins and arteries should be, there were transparent plastic tubes channeling the blood. But where was the heart? An elderly man in a white lab coat with silvering black hair entered from a side room. He wore a pair of horn-rimmed glasses, yet one of the lenses was tinted out. I'm Anthony from Express Me, your package? He accepted the package and inspected it. I then noticed a black scuff mark on the side. Did you drop this? He said in an accent I couldn't place, glaring at me with that one single milky eye. No, sir, I noticed a telltale heart beating faster. Then what is this mod, he said. Not sure, uh, I kept it safe in my cap. I knew this place did something with body parts, and I hoped I wasn't about to find something important was going to become a video star. He shook his head, and I presented him with the ticket. He signed off and shuffled off with the hand through to another door, mumbling in his own strange language. I found myself mesmerized by the beating heart and was staring at it for a long time, pumping slower and slower and slower. Sir, your business is done here. The guard barked and led me out of the facility, and I drove eastward toward home and a hot meal and a shower. A month later, I quit Express Me for a temp job since the expenses of being an independent were on the body and the vehicle. Once, in a grocery store, I saw an old woman who was missing her right hand, and I wondered if that was the hand I delivered. 
To this day, I would see an amputee and wonder if their former limbs were being kept alive in a strange laboratory, with the soulless, bodiless heart thumping, 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 thumping. Hello? Is this thing on? Oh, man. Soldier, Suck. policeman, fireman, and stand-up comedian. A few trades that entertain danger and disaster. Yet those people show up to work every day. In stand-up, there's rarely a physical danger, but like any public performance, the fear level rivals that of any dangerous trade. Not that I would trade RPG fire for a few hecklers. The stand-up comedy class was held at McCurdy's Comedy Club at the Bradenton Holiday Inn, Riverside. Comprising of a bar, tables and chairs, a small stage, a solitary mic stand, and two fake plants, this was one of the straws that Bradenton culture breathed through. Mr. McCurdy, the owner and namesake, taught the six-week class that culminated in the final exam, a five-minute bit on an open mic night. There were about 12 students sitting at the tables where the audience would usually sit. Half the class consisted of a group from a company that took the class as part of a confidence-building exercise. All were middle-aged and joked amongst each other like 8th graders. On my side was a 20-something Italian girl who was raving to me about Green Day's new album, and right next to her was a meek marine biologist about my age. McCurdy started the class. He was a veteran comic who headlined all the major clubs and did corporate events when not running his struggling club. Our first exercise was to introduce ourselves, our reason for being there, and to tell a joke. The corporate group told some lame jokes. Then the oldest guy with a brown leather couch tan told this joke to introduce himself. What happens when a black lady gets an abortion? She gets a check from Crime Stoppers. Everybody groaned and I made some sarcastic remark. Well, I'd remember the Second Amendment because if you're going to do that kind of joke in a mixed crowd, you better be packing, I said. Everyone laughed and McCurdy seemed pleased with this retort. Could I have a natural talent for this, I thought? Could I be opening for George Carlin, Dennis Miller, and some other big comedy headliner by the end of the month? I believed this was an advantageous moment and that soon an agent, a picture deal, and a family sitcom with wacky neighbors was in my future. I told this joke, which I love to tell kids. I took my dog for a walk today. You know, the one with no legs. It was a real drag. I got some laughs and McCurdy commented on it and discussed how it could be turned into a few jokes. He created variations on the spot that were funnier than mine, like a great artist making a balloon animal. Our second class was about how to redress the stage. Do you keep the mic stand on or do you take the mic in hand and move the stand behind you? Do you sit or stand? How do you lead into your act? McCurdy stressed that the first minute of your act determines whether the audience will like you in coming on stage with a confident, High energy stride determines an act's success or failure. As the class progressed, the corporate group dwindled to a couple of people. Even the First Amendment advocate was a no-show by the fifth week. During that time, we learned how to construct an act from writing, practice, and even taking on hecklers. At every moment, McCurdy told us that even fake confidence helped. 
You see that stage up there? He told me after a practice session went badly. What do you see? A stage? No, that's your stage. When you're on there, you own it. If people believe you own it, the crowd is yours. A week before the final exam, I had my act constructed and recorded my practice sessions on a video camera. Even McCurdy said I wrote some great material. But material, like ingredients, can end up as slop or a fine meal in right or wrong hands. I practiced even harder. Week 6, the final exam, a live performance in front of a live audience. Only the loud Italian girl and the meek marine ballage showed up. The clan's court jester didn't show up. Perhaps he took my advice seriously. I had invited my parents, who videotaped the act, and I realized my parents didn't know what a dirty mouth I had. I always kept self-censored around them, but there was no hiding it now. After warming up the crowd, we each in turn went up and did our act. First, the Italian girl gave a nervous performance about her family, which earned a few titters, but it seemed her bravado didn't transfer much on stage. The meek marine ball had just killed with his wife-can't-cook jokes. He seemed so calm and self-possessed and even got an applause round in the middle. Perhaps he pretended the audience was in fish tanks. And I had to follow him, so the audience's expectations were much higher. As for me, well, here's the damage. America, hello America. I mean, I, I, I believe in America. It was a total mess. And what do you know? Hey, it comes back. It's, it's in great shape now. <laughs> we got a new Congress. I'm really psyched about that. I mean, I love, I love, uh, when I was all excited to do it. And, you know, it's so funny. I mean, it, America's cleaning up. Everyone's getting off the drugs. They're smoking less. They're, you know, doing everything less. And I, I think Governments on drugs now. I mean, it's not uncommon that government officials do drugs. I mean, Bill Clinton, you know, has been known to smoke pot. Dan Well has been rumored also to smoke pot. World of fact. Uh, the only problem is that Clinton didn't inhale. I don't think Dan Well has ever exhaled. <laughs> One of the interesting things is that uh, I mean, I got you got to know that Democrats are pumping a lot of Prozac right now. I mean, that's a big loss. And there are also a lot of older people. I mean, I'm glad, you know, senior citizens are getting a lot of action in government. You know, Strom Thurmond, I mean, how many trees, how many rings in this old tree? I mean, he's an old man. I mean, this guy's got to be free basing formaldehyde. I don't want to keep this guy alive. Last time this guy tried to run for any public office, I mean, the first time this guy tried to run for any public office, I mean, Jefferson to Washington, listen, we haven't written the Constitution yet, so you can't run for office. This guy is way too old. Jesse Helms, man, he'd love to do changes. He just can't fit the moonshining still inside of his office. <laughs> I'm not saying that guy's a redneck. I'm from Alabama, he's from North Carolina. But he drives around and he, you know, shows up in the first, you know, first congressional session in a pickup truck with a gun rack and a a bumper sticker that says, uh, guns don't kill people, colors do. That is a little backwards. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. This guy has got to get most... I have relatives like this. I mean, just come up and say the most embarrassing thing in the world. They gotta get CIA agents posted, you know, in every corner, everything does good press crunch, and hit with a tranquil edger dart, and says I'm stupid, you know? And uh, they got a lot of stuff about women and gynecological problems. You know, it's like, oh. 
this guy is doing for, you know, public, you know, Republican vintage, that nobody getting in for French kissing. This guy is terrible. It's kind of funny, I used to deliver pizzas, and, you know, speaking of drugs, half these people are stoned. I used to get called up, called up, this guy would say, Aaron, I'd like, like, a uh, large pizza with French dressing. Cream cheese, anchovies, and spam. This guy is either very baked or a disturbed trimester. I asked him his address. Where's your address? The third astral plane. Alright, okay. It's funny thing is that uh, I don't endorse Domino's pizza. I mean, they were probably the worst food you could ever have because people, the only people who would eat pizza after 11 o'clock are doing something very illicit. Worst, I mean, pizza I ever got was like, it was basically a rich cracker with crankcase oil that you know, melted down contents. This was the most god-awful thing I ever had. What's this funny, most of the, you know, most of the clients for Domino's pizza I mean, they would ne never be able to work. They drug test. Nobody, you know, and plus the, the billionaire president of the whole chain is very religious. He is not going to let these kind of people work for Oh, he'll take their money. He'll steal their money after 11 o'clock. You know, but I mean, that's America. That's why I love being in America. 30 minute gratification for your money back. I wish marriage and relationships were like that. You know, uh, you can only do one better. I mean, you just imagine cranking up the tube one day and you're watching Eric Estrada, Eric Estrada, and Dionne Warwick, and they're out there, you know, talking psychic pizza network. You know, and you see this guy, you just, you just roll one. You know, he doesn't look quite look like you know a president of society. Then all of a sudden, he opens the door, thinks it's the police. What's up, man? What's up, man? And this guy goes up, Jordan, uh, large sausage with pepperoni, onions, and uh, anchovies. Wow. I didn't even know it was going to be hungry. <laughs> and there it is right that says, cold psychic pizza for pizza delivered before it's conceived. Thank you very much. I did better than expected. I really enjoyed myself up there. The power I had over the audience rushed to my head, and I wanted more. So, my comedy career began. I went home and brushed up on the act and arrived at the next open mic two weeks later. This time, the audience was much older, and I thought I saw a couple of oxygen tanks wheezing amongst the chairs. I'm going to have to take it easy on this crowd, I thought, or they're going to have to call the paramedics. McCurdy introduced me, and I took the company of the two fake plants in the mic stand and entertained. I discovered the crowd wasn't just elderly. Some of them were in wheelchairs with the small wheels, the kind where the person was totally unable to mobilize, a human handcart. So I launched into my act and every joke bombed. This is what I heard. Except louder and I had two agonizing minutes to go. As for owning the stage, someone had put a lean on that deed. Bombing is the lucid version of the naked in public nightmare. After the show, I was sitting at the bar and the geriatric village passed by and this old man said, Don't quit your day job. Okay. Can I come work at your place, I said. I finally got a few laughs from these old folks. 
After a few tries at open mic at McCurdy's and coffee bars, I realized that it would take years to get my stage wings. And if I wanted to commit to this, then I was looking for more bombs, more silences, and more chilly responses. Maybe someday it would all come together, but I didn't have the patience. I grew up loving comedy. I used to watch Saturday Night Live after my parents went to bed with the sound turned down low. A friend and I used to listen to Richard Pryor and George Carlin albums when we snuck away to our room to listen to them. But what I listened to wasn't the best. I just listened to The Survivors. Wet, dirty, stinking, unrewarding, yet somehow fun, my life as a dishwasher for Euphemia Hay was among my happiest working days. I had been a dish dog at many restaurants and somehow enjoyed my stint at Euphemia Hay the most. Mad race chef Arpke ran one of the top restaurants in the southeast and was the Wikipedia of every dirty joke on record, the common theme being buggery. Yet he treated his crew right and paid well as to be expected in the service industry. We always got a communal meal before our shift and one dollar draft beers at the end of the day. I worked the high snowbird season, which in Florida began about Thanksgiving and dwindled around mid-March, when Interstate 75 would clot with northbound Buicks and Cadillacs as the snowbirds drove back to their homesteads, escaping the oncoming tropical weather. Our job prospects took a hiatus as well, as most of us just took temporary retirement. I remember reading Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London about his days as a flunger or a dishwasher at a Paris hotel and then at a failing cafe. Even in the 30s, commercial kitchens were barely out of the wood stove era, and there was no code enforcement. Dishwashing was done by hand with coarse lye soap and wrapped chains to scrub the copper. In that oppressive, hot kitchen, Orwell's anti-authoritarian theories germinated over a briny sink, elbows deep in muck grease and rats scrounging for crumbs at his feet. Yet I had it much easier than Orwell. The dish dog station occupied a niche immediately left of the twin doors that led to the dining room. The white tile and stainless steel area was simple in its arrangement. A U-shaped stainless steel table ran the perimeter of the dish station. The left side was where the waiters deposited their dishes and dropped their silverware into a soapy bus tub. Above it was a slanted shelf that held the glass racks. The beige ones for water glasses, the red for red wine glasses, and the green for white wine glasses and the occasional cocktail glass. In the middle lay a rinse station with a removable sluiced insert over a fitted sink with a spray nozzle bobbing over it on a flexible spring. To the left was a rubber-lined hole that dropped into a garbage can where we dumped food scraps. We then rinsed off the gravy and grease and remaining food bits washed into the sluice. The mix of food waste in the sluice had many names like sludge salad, sink stew, or menudo. Then the tall square dish machine took over. I or whoever worked that station lifted a handle to slide a tray into its maw and close it, hit a green button and run the washing cycle. A dish dog was in tune with the wash cycle's rhythms and if you worked as a catcher you could pull the tray out a split second after the cycle stopped and have the dishes stacked and expedited before the other tray was ready. Some nights a good crew barely broke a sweat and kept up with the machine and never got in the weeds. Many nights went without a hitch and others were pure Cambodia, as Chef Ray would put it. One Saturday night close to Christmas, pure Cambodia met the Tet Offensive with a touch of Rwanda. 
Tony reserved three 12 tops and a private party on the same night, the dumb bitch, one of the waiters said to another as the waitstaff groaned and one threw a cocktail tray toward the back porch. I called the waiters ninjas since they wore black slacks with black dress shirts and came and went with stealth and speed. We were in for a rough night. Busy nights put heavy demands on the crockery supply and there was a tight food-to-plate ratio and shortages seemed to miss each other like switched trains. Kevin, the roundsman, told us we need to take whatever smoke break now because we wouldn't be out of the weeds until 10.30. That night, Slim and Buddy worked. Both were black men who had both served in the same state penitentiary. Slim was in his 50s, tall and lanky, a poof of black hair framing his balding head and walked with a permanent janitor stoop. By day, he was a low-income pimp. He once invited me to his MLK corner to hook up with one of his white girls he had in his stable. She likes to read books. She'll read you why you're hitting her. Buddy was a well-built con in his 20s, a few months out of the pen, and had a girlfriend and a baby. He was trying hard to stay clean and out of trouble, but he still had some vinegar left in him. During breaks, they would trade jailhouse tales at the screened-in back porch and lean against the mop stall and smoked and flipped butts into the stall. I hated when they did that because the butts clogged up the drain and I had to sweep them out before using it, but I didn't dare protest. Both of them had been in for murder. Chubby made a lady out of that boy. Tore that boy's booty all the way up to here, Slim said, tracing a vertical slash up his behind with a cigarette. Shit, yeah, you know what else that boy did? Set his ass on fire. He used to walk around all drawed up like a mummy, Buddy said, flipping an imaginary match into the stall. Yeah, that's what happened to me. I killed this old faggot that tried to get me in his car. I told that judge he was trying to make a lady out of me. When the break was over, we took our position as the crockery mounted and the madness known as the rush arrived like a black surf. I worked the rinsing station and Slim worked as a catcher and Buddy filled in spots where we were in the weeds like scraping dishes or helping Slim stack and expedite and sort silverware. Slim and Buddy both left a cigarette propped up on a rack in the back ready to be smoked during any lull. I had the dish machine running at full capacity for an hour until the waiters were running out of room at the drop-off table. Buddy jumped in and started scraping dishes and restacking, then Slim expedited. Elbows and limbs worked feverishly as a steam billowed into a dirty sauna that fogged my glasses with a greasy film. We need ovals with wings, I heard Kevin shout, slapping his fat hand on a stainless steel shelf. We got steaks burning on the grill and nowhere to put them. Get some ovals now. Kevin's temper was building as he tapped a spatula on the wooden table they used for setup. Slim carried a stack of ovals high as his chest to relieve the man and I could feel the knot of the rush slacken. But then I heard an explosive crash of crockery. I looked around and Slim and Craig, a ninja waiter, were glaring at each other, a pile of about 15 shattered ovals at their feet. Why don't, Why don't you look, look where, where you're, you're going, going, motherfucker? They yelled at each other. The ninja had burst through the door and ran into Slim, causing him to lose his handle on the dishes. The amazing sound absorption properties of the double doors kept the diners ignorant of the commotion. On one side, you were in a caramel-lighted, quaint dining room, with shaker tables and chairs, soft jazz or world beat music playing softly to the diner's conversation. On the other side was as loud as a steamship engine room, and you could have a loud argument without diners hearing anything. Colin, the Irish floor manager, came and ordered both of them to return to their work and told one of the busboys to get a broom and a dustpan. No one owned blame for what happened and night resumed, except for the 12-top that arrived 10 minutes before closing time.
Now we're really into weeds. Straight into the dark forest and there was no gingerbread house in the clearing. We got behind on silverware and a ninja waiter grabbed a fork and a knife set and showed it to me. These, damn it! People eat with these! This ain't no taco stand! You reach a point where your fastest isn't going to do. We were about 16 dishes in the hole and we were again out of dishes. Everything was in the dining room and this logic was lost on everybody. Then we had glasses to wash and that meant draining and refilling the dish machine with clean water which took 5 minutes and that was 5 minutes we didn't have. Kevin sent Larry, the racist salad chef, to help us out but unless he wanted to glue together the broken dishes there was nothing he could do. I could hear Kevin getting louder and louder, pounding his fist on the counter until he grabbed a butter dish and threw it in a corner and stormed off to the back porch, trailing curses that would embarrass a merchant seaman. Finally, a greasy stack came in from a 12-top. With miracle speed, we got caught up in the steaks, ducks, and chickens made their destinations and the night winded down and the dishes were stacked like greasy towers. Kevin came over and said we could take a 10-minute break and apologize for the outburst. All three of us dragged ourselves to the back, leaning against anything that would support us. What the fuck? I heard Slim mutter. He had stowed a cigarette on one of the wire racks where he kept the cleaning chemicals. What the fuck's my smoke? He said to Buddy. Then, like a vaudeville character, Larry walked in the back screen door, a Marlboro dangling from his lips. Larry was related to Chef Ray's wife, and that was the only reason he stayed hired. He was awaiting a court date for his fifth DUI and was still driving around. This delighted me since I was a southerner and had been harangued by northerners about our racism. And here was this stooped, fiftyish, freckled fuck-up from Jersey who knew every racial epithet for every race. He was one of those people who looked at anyone who had an extra nickel to his name and spat, Whose ass did he kiss? That's my smoke, Slim said. You owe me a smoke. This one is mine, Larry said. Bullshit! I had one right there. Well, this one is mine. Buddy sidled next to Slim and glared at Larry, giving him some backup. Larry took the cigarette from his lips, exhaled in their direction, and said, Boy, don't keep giving me that look. I'll slap the black off you. I heard a rusty click and Buddy rushed forward through the blue smoke. He had a six-inch knife in his hand, the blade pitted and blemished with rust, but the edge was shiny and sharp. The handle was wrapped in black electrical tape. He held it at an angle and was reaching for Larry's neck. Larry stumbled backward into the screen door, making threats but still sizing up his escape route. Bitch, I'll cut those freckles off, Buddy said. Slim grabbed him by the shoulders and told him it wasn't worth it. Larry took the opportunity to land another fuck you and Buddy tore away from Slim and lunged for him. Larry almost tore the screen door apart trying to open it and ran out. Kevin and the other line chefs came in with a couple of ninja waiters straining to look over their shoulders. It's all right, I'll talk to him, Slim said to Kevin as he took the knife from Buddy's hand and told him that the cracker wasn't worth going back to the pen. Kevin sent Buddy home that night and Larry jumped in his car and sped off. This meant an extra long night for all of us. We still had to wash the line cook's pots and pans and utensils and remaining silverware and glasses. Then while Slim washed the last of the pots and pans, I drugged these rubber mats from the kitchen and hosed them off in a mop stall and got covered with food bits. Then I swept the entire kitchen garbage into a two-foot-high pile of bread rolls, lettuce, meat trimmings, and wrappings. Chef Ray was insistent that the floors were spotless by the end of the night. From the back porch, we had a long hose connected to the hot water where I sprayed down the floors and flushed any garbage from under the counters and the stoves. You had to be extra careful lest someone came through the doors while you were spraying the area and scalded their feet. 
Next, he took a long-handled squeegee and squeezed all the water and waste into the drain. Finally, a hot bleach mop. By this time, you hoped your dish dog partner was 100% done and breaking down and cleaning the dish station. Yet, Slim still had several pots and stacks of unexpedited dishes left, so I continued helping him. We gave up on hurrying. The last task was dragging the three remaining kitchen garbage cans to the dumpster and dumping them. Slim produced a roach he saved for the night, and we took a hit behind a dumpster gate. We then had a second win and dumped the cans into the dumpster and kept our faces and mouths turned away so we didn't get a spritz of the old dumpster juice in the mouth or the eyes. Colin, the floor manager, came in to see if we were done and realized it was nearly 1 a.m. Wet, dirty, and tired, we lumbered toward the time clock and punched out and joined a bitch session in the bar with the other ninja waiters and line cooks. Then the beers came, and the night was relegated to a joke, played on all of us in the food industry. I almost did break it up, Kevin said. I wanted to see him slap the freckles off his head. Yeah, that fucker, said Greg, the broiler. You guys rocked it tonight, said Eddie, the saute chef. It seemed at the end of the night, we were the kitchen heroes. We were the men in the boiler room, stripped to the waist, stoking the engines that kept the night chugging along. It was well known that the lion cooks were always on the dish dog side of the argument, and it was rare that there was any enmity between us. We rarely bought our own beers, and sometimes the waiters tipped us a few dollars for the rough night, but not that night. To this day, I have never felt the same kind of warmth and appreciation that I would receive after a job. Maybe a pat on the back meant more if it was on a wet shoulder. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about me and where I'm performing, visit www.tonysololive.com. And if you're attending the Alabama or Denver Fringe Festivals, I hope you come and see me. We would like to thank our Atlanta Fringe audio sponsor, Could Be Pretty Cool, a production company whose mission is to inspire community building through the arts. You can binge all of our audio shows at atlantafringe.org slash fringe dash audio or wherever you enjoy your podcasts.